This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from 11 to 1. Now, Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Here is Libby Schneimer. Good morning. Happy Monday. Well, it was buried in a single paragraph in the Liberal Ontario budget, and it turns out the federal Liberals are interested too. The concept is a guaranteed minimum income for the provinces and perhaps the country's most impoverished residents. Is this a good idea to give a a leg up to those less fortunate? Or is it an incentive to stay on social assistance instead of working? And what about the cost to the rest of us? I want to hear your thoughts. The numbers 416-360-0740 or toll-free 1-866-740-4740. But first, let's go to someone with an expert opinion, Benjamin Tall, Deputy Chief Economist at CIBC World Markets. Hi, Benjamin. Hi there. How are you? Fine. How are you? Wonderful, wonderful. So what do you think of this idea? You know what? I like it. I think it's a good idea. And uh, I think that some, I think it will happen, quite frankly. I think that if you look what the federal government is saying, what the liberals are saying now in Ontario, I think it, it might happen. You know, remember, it's not the first time that we try it in uh, Canada, in Manitoba. We tried it uh, in the 70s. It was a pilot. And here, even here, they're talking about a pilot, basically, to try to see what's happening. So we're talking about the possibility in which they will introduce it uh, somewhere in Ontario and see what happens. Okay, well, uh, so how would it work? So you would, it, would it replace other uh, aid that people get, or would it just top it up? Yeah, there are two ways of uh, looking at minimum wage, if you wish. One is actually negative uh, taxation, basically uh, paying uh, people vis-a-vis the tax system, but that's not going to work because then it gives you an incentive to minimize how much you make when you report it. So they will not go this way. They will go with basically minimum uh, income guaranteed. So basically, yes, the more you make, the less you will get, and it will replace many other programs that are available now. So you basically get one check. One check. Many other checks. Uh, so I think it's very it's basically to simplify the process. Uh, the question is to what extent it will, uh, and that's the main risk, is that uh, people will say, you know what, if I get free money, I'm not going to try even to find a job. And well, that's, that's, that's exactly, you know, uh, and uh, I mean, you tell me, what is, what is the incentive? If you're going to get a, a guaranteed minimum income, what's the incentive to maybe take a job that's not a fabulous job, that's a minimum wage job. Exactly. So that's why it has to be well designed. You have to find this threshold. And let's go back to Manitoba of the 1970s uh, because we can go back there and see what happened. So what happened back then, uh, if you look at the numbers and you analyze them, you find out that uh, really there are two groups that uh, reduce their labor market participation. One, women on maternity leave. Okay. They basically stay longer, which is, I think, a good thing. The other is students that were also in the labor force, high school students, that probably had to work in order to support the family. They also reduced their labor market involvement, which I think is a good thing as well. So those two 
pockets will take it if they stop uh, looking for a job and uh, reduce their uh, participation in the market. Uh, we haven't seen, according to the Manitoba um, uh, experiment, we haven't seen a significant decline in labor market participation among older people in prime age workers. So that's good. Now, one thing we have to remember, this was a pilot. Right, and program. it was in the 1970s. The, 70s, the world exactly. very is very different Is very different now. Exactly. And also, you have a situation in which when it's a pilot, you know that it's temporary. Therefore, you really don't change your behavior. Therefore, I think that if we do it, we really have to do this pilot, and we have to do it in a very smart way. It has to be rural. It has to be urban. It has to be large center, small center. It has to be designed in the right way. So it's not easy, but I think at least we can try. Okay. Uh, Benjamin, I'm just going to give out the numbers again. 416-360-0740 or toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And the question is, is it a good idea to give people a guaranteed minimum income or is it just going to be an incentive not to work, collect free money from the government? We're talking to Benjamin Tal, Deputy Chief Economist at CIBC World Markets. And, Benjamin, I think they have this in some European countries, in Switzerland, I think. Yes, they're trying in Switzerland. Actually, they're going uh, to have a referendum on that. Over there, they're talking about relatively large number. I think that they're talking about uh, $35,000 US dollar a year. (laughs) It's uh, it's really relatively large. We're not talking about these kind of numbers in Ontario or in Canada. The numbers will be much, much lower than that. Uh, But, yes, many, many European countries are now toying with this notion. Even in the U.S. in the 70s, they try a version of that under Nixon. So there are all kinds of possibilities. Um, I think this is something that we should uh, at least explore because the current situation is way too complex, too many checks, uh, and uh, many people that need it don't get it, many people that don't need it get it. So I think that if you simplify the process, maybe you can uh, hit the target in a more accurate way, way. And how much would it cost us? Very difficult to say. That's why it has to be very well designed. But it will not be much more expensive than the current system. Remember, it's not in addition. It's replacing the current system. It's replacing the current system. So are you saying that the current system ends up topping people up to a guaranteed minimum income? I don't think so. Well, I think clearly that will not be the case. But it seems that there is some waste in the system and some people that do not need it get it. So I think that... And <laughs> you think that would solve this? <laughs> Probably not. But You're I an optimist. I, I think that we should try. I, I think it will cost. There is no question that it will cost. But I think that uh, maybe if we do it in the right way, the cost is worth it. Because we have people that live in poverty in this, um, in this province and in this country, and they cannot get out of it. And I think that uh, maybe that's one way of looking at it. Again, the key risk here is that you create dependency on the system, and that's not a good thing. And that's why we have to develop those pilots. We cannot just jump to it and try and do it now. We have to look at other countries. We have to look at what happened in Manitoba. We have to uh, look at the pilots in Ontario and see what, what it means. It will cost, but remember, it's replacing something, so the cost will not be in the sky. Okay, uh, Benjamin, hang on a sec. Let's uh, see what our, hear what our listeners have to say. Melon Coldwater, Hello. Good morning, Libby. I have been singing the praises of this for at least 20 years, and uh, the lone conservative voice, uh, Hugh Siegel, has been also trumpeting this for uh, uh, at least 25 years. 
the, and I'm a fiscal conservative, don't get me wrong, but when I looked at the numbers and, and saw, first of all, think about all the civil servants that we will no longer have employed. <laughs> that they'll get a guaranteed minimum income. Absolutely. But the thing is, is that if you think of the way things are now with, a, with the pensions and everything else that they get, the fact of the matter is, is that we will eliminate so much duplication and and overlap of of various programs. We there's you won't for the per, person who's on welfare who gets the part time job. They don't right now. They get part of that income clawed back, so they're not given any kind of an incentive to move ahead. They are being penalized. Think of the people who have to go out and work. Uh, two jobs, uh, uh, some of them, just so that they can afford the daycare. Now, all of a sudden, they're, they're, uh, one of the spouses stays at home and is able to give a child, which we all know, regardless of the education in some of the uh, ex- uh, the uh, child care facilities, the best place uh, for a child... And I do have to home. correct you on one thing, and that's right now people on social assistance uh, get assistance with daycare. So I, they don't. They don't have to pay for daycare. You're confused. I'm not talking about people on 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 the social assistance. I'm talking about the the average person who ha, who 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 has to go out and because they need to have the uh, d- daycare, they've got to get a a, a second part time job. Okay. But re- regardless, Libby, the fact is is that it it is a smart way of being of of empowering people and in the last point that i'd like to point out and that is apparently there's something around 78 percent of people when asked are not happy in the uh, in the job that they're in they just they're they happen to be there out of circumstances and they're making money think of what we could have when we now uh, freed up all these people to actually pursue something that they like, and when your heart is in it, and you 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 do far better, and the attitude that you have, and the the uh, the, the rest of the influence on our society, will we'll all be far better off for it. Okay, Mel, thank you so much for your call, and Benjamin Tall, thank you so much for your input. Um, We're going to take a quick break, and we will be right back with more of this, and uh, we'll be hearing from the Conference Board of Canada. Back after this. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from 11 to 1. Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Here is Libby Snymer. Welcome back. We are talking about the concept of a guaranteed minimum income for people who are living below the poverty line. Is it a good idea to rationalize all those programs, or is it an incentive for people to just stay home and collect free money? Now, before we go to Glenn Hodgson from the conference board, let's just take one of our very patiently waiting callers. Ed in Toronto, hi, how are you? Very good. Uh, I think I agree uh, 100% with those two gentlemen. I guess I can't add too much more. The idea that someone going out to do, say, he's washing dishes, uh, either can be home with his child, directing it in a in a positive way, or a female at home. It doesn't matter, male, female, or being able to take his passion. And we all know if we really like what we're doing, we get very good at it. So that will help society in general. We got people 
directed into things that they're going to be very industrious at and improve the whole public picture, everything. So those two guys are right on. Okay. That's all I have to say. Okay. Thank you very much for your call. Okay. So, Glenn Hodgson, Chief Economist at the Conference Board of Canada. How are you this morning? I'm very well, thank you. Well, what do you think of the idea of a guaranteed minimum income? Um, I think it's time that we examine smarter ways to provide uh, social income support in our society that actually allows people to engage more deeply, that uh, builds pathways into the workforce for the people at the lower end of the income scale. And maybe the, if we design it right, it might actually save us money. But I'd be quite happy to talk about that, Libby. Okay. Well, so people are saying, well, great. If we provide people with a guaranteed minimum income, they'll be able to follow their passions. Now, I have a problem with this. I see a lot of, unfortunately, I see a lot of extremely well-educated people who can't follow their passions because it's it's tough out there. So in terms of people who perhaps don't have that education, don't have those opportunities, I don't see how a guaranteed minimum income would do that for them. Well, let's go through this step by step. Um, first of all, every province in this country provides welfare support. Right. Uh, we do things already. We spend billions of dollars annually to provide a kind of a basic floor for people. Um, we then have constructed a very complex system where we're, we appear to be providing support, but in fact, we've built what people call the welfare wall. We actually have punitively high marginal tax rates if people who are in welfare go into the workforce and try and work, try and better themselves. And this creates a strong disincentive for people to actually get off welfare and go to work. Um, so at a minimum, uh, in, in terms of designing good public policy, we should be looking for ways to reduce the welfare wall. Um, I'll go a step further. Okay, um, let me let me just ask you one thing then. Uh, I would agree with that, but but how does guaranteeing an income uh, give people an incentive to work? Well, a guaranteed income system, if it's properly designed, would actually have low marginal tax rates for earned income beyond the guarantee, um, where you begin to claw back a little bit of their income, but not very much, and give them a really strong incentive to add more income, pay low marginal taxes up to some point, and get off welfare and get out there and actually follow their passion. So, frankly, a lot of this is is in design. And we haven't done a fundamental review, I, I don't think ever, of the entire welfare system in a province like Ontario or Quebec or anyplace else. So at a very minimum, in terms of good public policy, we should be stepping back, saying, what have we created in terms of a very Byzantine social welfare system? Is there a better way to actually have welfare be a springboard rather than a either a safety net or even a trap that traps people in welfare forever. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I know that there were some workfare proposals and programs that they didn't work too well. No, they don't work. And, and, and for the most part, we're frankly putting band-aids on cancer. <laughs> we're, we're taking a really awful social setting and doing little incremental things step by step that often turn out to be worse than, than not treating it in the first place. I think there's another issue, Libby, which is, what are the other social costs of poverty? Um, what are we spending, for example, on, on uh, health? People going to the emergency, having serious mental health problems and never get treated. Um, what about their, the incarceration costs, the policing costs, the judicial system? We've, we've actually never added all, all that up, except for once. There was an experiment, and I can talk about that if you wish done 35 years ago in Manitoba, yes, which we showed, were... that, showed that the MinCom program there actually 
uh, encourage people to re-enter the workforce and save money in terms of health cost outlays. So the fundamental point for me, and I've written about this, I've had a number of commentaries in, in, in the media um, saying, isn't it time to step back and look for a better way, look for a better mousetrap? Okay. Where we can build a floor, but also encourage people to re-engage in society. Okay, Glenn, hang on. Uh, I'm going to take a call from one of our callers who's been waiting patiently. Alan Brantford. Hi, Al. Yes. Back. Uh, how are you? Good morning, folks. I, I remember at the beginning of Donald Trump's campaign here this year that he, he was talking about the, that nobody in the United States should be paying any kind of tax that makes under $26,000 a year. And that was each. If there was a husband and a wife, they should each have that kind of an exemption. That's what got the troops under him, the, the guys down in the blue-collar workers, things like that. Had they ever thought of that here? You work, but you don't pay no tax until you make over 26000 federal or state or provincial. Glenn? Well, that would be one aspect of a, of a guaranteed annual income or basic income program. You would think about, frankly, the calibration. Uh, at what point would people be able to earn income and not have to pay tax? And that would encourage them to work more. So this would be part of the dialogue, looking for uh, the right structure of incentives to encourage people to to better themselves, want to earn more, uh, but also not get trapped by the welfare wall, where they're paying really punishingly high marginal tax rates from working even a few hours. And and again, Glenn, uh, how much would this cost us, the taxpayer? Well, we don't know, and that's why there's a strong conversation emerging right now about doing some pilot projects. Uh, I don't think you change a really fundamental part of public policy without um, trying it out, without working through an experiment. And for me, the ideal model would be that we try out basic income uh, in various places, do it by province, do it for, for parts of southern Ontario, see how it works, try different rates, try different designs. See whether you're actually getting the benefit that we hope for or whether we're actually making the system worse. So what what we've really had is a lack of innovation, imagination, creativity. I've been an economist now for 35 years, Libby, and and we have not really, beyond the experiment in Manitoba, tried this out in in 40 years now. Isn't it time to find a a better way to do things and see whether we can achieve better outcomes? Okay. Well, Alan Brantford, thank you so much for your call. And uh, let us go now to Mark in Toronto. Hi, Mark. Good morning. How are you today? Fine. How are you? Not too bad, thank you. I'll tell you my opinion on the program. One of the reasons I do think it would work is you would have one department overseeing all people instead of multiple departments and multiple hundreds of people all achieving the same goal. Well, we, we don't know that we would have one department, but <laughs> that's a thought. Well, all I'm thinking is we got m- multiple different uh, agencies that that help out people that, that are in need of uh, subsidizing their incomes, be it welfare or, what, or w- whatever the case. If there's one source, uh, wouldn't it logically uh, eliminate a lot of the need for, and cost at the same time? Glenn? Well, this is one of the reasons why I'm attracted to this. I'm a, I'm a bit of a fiscal conservative myself. I worked at the Federal Department of Finance for 10 years, and I would like to see governments run as efficiently as possible. And I think your caller is spot on. I think the p- part of the attraction of doing this is that you would eliminate basically the government overhead from administering social welfare. Um, it, the best system for me would be something run through the tax system because we already have 
uh, the Canada Revenue Agency administering our tax system, and you could do away with a lot of the bureaucracy, find ways to provide income support, and maybe even save a bit of money on government. So how, how many uh, civil servants would lose their jobs with a system like this? Well, there would probably be big job loss, but we're at a time when the interior economy actually needs workers. So I, the ideal would be to trans people, transfer people out of public administration into other things uh, where they could add value to society as well. Well, yeah, I think that's uh, that's a big deal. Like when, <laughs> do you remember the the last election when Tim Hudak said, hundred thousand civil servants will be gone." That didn't work out too well. Well, I mean, the attraction of having a, a series of pilot projects, Libby, would be you you try it out. Let's say that you choose an area in northern Ontario, someplace like uh, Iroquois Falls or Sudbury, to try it out. Let's say we try it out in Windsor and try it out in St. Catharines and try it out in parts of Toronto and see which model works best. This is not going to happen overnight. This is going to be an evolution that, frankly, is going to take, at best case, three to five years. Um, over that time, you can then begin to manage your workforce within the Ontario Public Service. Uh, we know that the baby boomers, and who are your listeners, of course, are getting ready to retire anyway. I would argue that governments are probably facing a big challenge in terms of um, even attracting, retaining qualified people with the boomers leaving. So this is the kind of experimentation within delivering government services that we're going to have to think about anyway, simply because of raw demographics. Okay. Glenn Hodgson, Chief Economist, Conference Board of Canada, thank you so much for your time. And also, uh, Mark, in Toronto, thanks for your time. Have a good day. Okay. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from 11 to 1. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to 1. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to 1. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to 1. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.